Georgia's DBHDD has an urgent health warning. One of every 10 counterfeit pills contain fentanyl, a powerful and very deadly drug. Pills from friends or dealers are unsafe, and one pill can cause an overdose. More info at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. So glad, as always, to have all of you with us out there. I hope you had a great Labor Day holiday uh, weekend. Um, You know, there was a time when I would have started this show on the day after Labor Day by saying, well, uh, Labor Day has come and gone, and now the political campaigns really get underway. It's the start of the political season. But that's a script we threw out some years ago. Uh, We know here, especially in Georgia, there is no end uh, to the political season and nothing particularly uh, extraordinary about the fact we passed Labor Day, except we're now just about nine weeks away from the uh, very consequential uh, midterm elections. Donald Trump continues to uh, cast a big shadow over much of the midterms. Um, um, and today we're going to talk about Donald Trump, but we're going to do it in the context of history. There, there are probably people out there who haven't followed politics um, over the years, who think that in some ways it was Donald Trump who was the author of the politics of grievance, recrimination, and rage. But as our special guest today uh, uh, points out, um, this is something that began many years ago in the 6th District of Georgia when Newt Gingrich was first elected to uh, the U.S. House. So we're going to talk in just a minute with Dana Milbank, Washington Post columnist, who's the author of the new book, The Destructionists, the 25-year crack-up of the Republican Party, in which he points out uh, how Gingrich and others who were allies of his uh, completely transformed the party to what we know it as uh, today, which is a party of grievance, rage, and recrimination. I think it's uh, fair to say an ultra-mega party. Joining me for that conversation is my Tuesday partner on the show from the AJC senior reporter, Tamar Hallerman. Tamar, thanks for being with us. We're going to introduce Dana in just a minute, but I've really enjoyed reading his book, um, and I know we're going to have a good time talking about it. Yeah, I'm so excited to dive in. You know, I covered Congress in mostly the the 2010s, so during and and after the the Tea Party wave. And to me, I think I kind of took for granted this kind of language of grievances and the the dysfunction and kind of legislative slowdown on Capitol Hill. To me, that's kind of the way that it's always been. So I've loved getting to dive into this book and see kind of the roots of, of lots of these changes. Well, Dana Milbank, uh, welcome to the show. We should point out to our listeners that you have covered Washington for for quite a long time now. You were at at one point, you were an editor, I think a senior editor at the New Republic. And in that capacity, we're covering the Clinton uh, White House. You covered Congress for the Wall Street Journal. Um, You then came to the Washington Post, where I think you covered the George W. Bush uh, presidency. And you've been a columnist at the Post now for, what, about 15 years or so? And people know you 
as a writer of insight with a kind of a slashing satiric uh, wit. Does that description seem to fit? <laughs> well, I don't know about the slashing, but uh, 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 hopefully they see me as an awfully nice guy. But yes, the, the, the biography is true. I arrived here uh, in, in Washington at just about the moment that uh, uh, Newt Gingrich was rising to the speakership. And back then, I thought, well, things are awfully wrong here. Uh, and what I, of course, looking back, like those were the good old days when things were still working yeah. properly. Um, so uh, it is. it did sort of the, the whole deterioration of civilization did sort of begin when I arrived in Washington. But I, I think I hope correlation is not causation in this case. Yeah. I, I want to dig into your book in just a minute, but tomorrow I think we really have to start with the big news that broke yesterday on Labor Day, um, and that is that Judge Eileen Cannon, who is a federal district judge in uh, the Southern District of Florida, uh, issued her ruling on the Trump uh, request for a special master to go through the papers that were seized in the search of Mar-a-Lago. Um, Judge Cannon said that um, the uh, the Justice Department uh, has to stop going through many of the documents until a special master is uh, appointed. In fact, they have to stop going through all of the documents. And and I think it was particularly interesting that she said that Judge that that um, Mr. Trump, she said, might suffer reputational harm from a search that was not conducted properly or, as she added, from a future indictment that was based even in part on property that ought to be returned. I, first of all, Tamar, I mean, the impact of the ruling, and I want to get Dane in on this too, is important in itself. But this, this suggestion that the search was improperly conducted has, to the best of my knowledge, arisen nowhere else since the search except in the Trump camp. And I mean, this is a, a decision by this federal judge that's gotten a lot of criticism in legal circles from folks who were really surprised that she is is allowing um, this stop and especially allowing this special master to look at claims of executive privilege, especially since Donald Trump is no longer in the White House and it kind of goes against what the current administration uh, wants to do. And so I think a lot of folks are expecting the Justice Department to, to appeal this ruling. It will go to the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals here in Atlanta, which is a notoriously conservative court. Six of the 11 judges, I believe, were appointed by President Trump. Um, and so it'll be interesting to see where it goes from here. But I think at this point, we can expect delays, uh, which I think in turn really helps Donald Trump, especially, you know, this, this helps him kind of continue his narrative, continue to talk publicly about how unfair this is to him. And I mean, this, this only helps him should he decide that he wants to run for president. Um, you know, it, it makes it a lot harder for the Justice Department to want to continue its investigation especially given precedent that they don't want to meddle in, in political campaigns. Dana, weigh in on this. Well, I agree with what uh, Tamar said about the uh, delay. I'm not certain, though, that it uh, uh, helps Donald Trump. I mean, the big complaint, um, uh, when a not quite similar but uh, superficially similar dispute was going on with uh, Hillary Clinton's uh, emails, the real complaint was that it dragged out so long that it got into the campaign season and became particularly damaging uh, 
to her. So, you know, this may be a case of the, uh, the Trump and his people you know, being careful what they wish for, because it does drag it out. Uh, and what, uh, the sort of the reemergence of, of Donald Trump as the, the visible face of the Republican Party has been quite harmful to uh, Republicans, at least the polling shows for these uh, midterm elections. Uh, so, uh, it, you know, the, the ruling probably, uh, you know, your, your, the assessment is correct. I don't think it changes the case very much. It just slows things down. Um, and but I'm not sure the the Trump assumption that this helps them by slowing it down is is, is accurate. All right. We're going to watch how this unfolds. Uh, Judge uh, Cannon has told both parties they have until late this week to uh, come up with their suggestions for who the special master ought to be. And we'll also wait to see if DOJ is going to appeal this ruling up to the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals, which, as Tamar points out, has been a notoriously conservative court for a long time. So let's talk uh, about your uh, book, uh, Dana, The Destructionist, The 25-Year Crack-Up of the Republican Party. And, And if you Don't mind, I want to just set the stage a little bit, as I did at the very beginning of the show. Gingrich was first elected in 1970. He served in Congress in 1979, elected in 78. It was the third time he'd run for the 6th District seat. And he did go uh, to the U.S. House as a backbencher in a minority party. Um, And he very quickly uh, began using the kind of tactics that um, would later lead to um, a complete transformation of how Republicans uh, go about the business of governance and uh, politics. And even though Gingrich sees himself as a policy wonk, Dana, it really wasn't his policies (laughs) that uh, took him to the leadership uh, of the party and to the speakership. Um, And so I want to go back, if I may, with the way you start the book. You take us to the news conference that Gingrich and many Republican candidates and incumbents held, I think it was September 27th, 1994, big election coming up that November midterm election. I, Dana, I covered Gingrich for many, many years. I was at that event mm-hmm. on the steps of the Capitol when he announced the contract to America. And you tell us in the book that there was this was an important event in some ways in understanding Gingrich's transformation of the party because to some to some extent the rhetoric that he employed in talking about the, where the country stood under democratic control. Yes. Yeah, I mean, I think if you listen to uh, the speech that day on the uh, uh, west front of the Capitol, you were hearing a speech very similar to the Donald Trump's American Carnage. Uh, speech in, in 2016 when he was uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, was inaugurated uh, right there on those same steps on the Western Front uh, of the Capitol. But it, it, it had an apocalyptic feel to it, uh, you know, that our country is being uh, destroyed, that, you know, rivers of blood, that, that, that was the, the theme to it. And it was shocking. Now, of course, it's not shocking so much now that we, you know, we, we sort of expect as much from uh, Donald Trump and his uh, followers. But back then, it was uh, shocking. And, uh, you know, if you think back to the, uh, uh, the contract, uh, basically none of it became law. I think there was like the only thing was like the 
Paperwork Reduction Act or something, which has not exactly you know earned a big big spot in history. Uh, but the big change uh, of that moment is how we began uh, to see politics. Uh, you know, Newt uh, four years before that he had sent out. Uh, you know how to speak like Newt through his political action committee. It sent it to all the uh, Republican candidates and uh, Republican uh, uh, lawmakers. And the way to speak like Newt was to refer to Democrats as traitors, sick, uh, corrupt, who are lying and stealing and abusing power. Now, we think about this now, and yeah, that's just how people talk about each other. Uh, but that is not at all uh, how it was back then. And, you know, in that, that back in that time, he said the problem with Republicans is they don't uh, encourage you to be nasty. Uh, and this was his innovation. You know, we all speak uh, like Newt now uh, in the political system. So the uh, a lot of the things we see now, whether it's, you know, the dehumanizing of opponents, treating them as uh, traitors to the country, not just people you disagree with, uh, the dysfunction, uh, you know, the, the constant throwing of sand in the gears uh, of government, uh, and also a lot of the, the violent rhetoric that we're hearing, a lot of the white nationalist uh, rhetoric that we're hearing, these all have uh, roots in, uh, in, in the Gingrich era. So, uh, Dana, I, I want to just pursue one aspect of what you just said. Um, you said that, that that list of words that Gingrich sent out, six, corrupt, sick, corrupt, betray, lie, steal, greed, uh, destroy, decay, all of those words. You said we all use that language today, even though it was shocking then. When you say that, though, do you, you, you really believe it's Republicans more than Democrats who are responsible for uh, what's happened to our, the toxicity of our politics today, right? Yes, and I don't mean you and I personally <laughs> using those words. Well, although, no, I know that, but but yeah, do you mean yeah. Democrats are as guilty yeah. of using um, a, that kind of pejorative language? No, as and that's and that's that's an important theme of the book. You know, we often talk about the polarization uh, in American politics, and it is true that there has been. Um, some sort of a, uh, a polarization that's occurred. Each, you know, the two parties have become more homogenous and have gone, you know, the Republicans have become uh, more uh, right-wing, the Democrats more left-wing. But that's not really the primary uh, factor that's going on here. And that, uh, you know, there is one party, as I write in this book, that has sort of ceased good faith participation in the democratic process. It is sabotaging the democratic process in various ways. And one of those uh, ways is this dehumanizing of your opponent, of saying that not only do you disagree, but my opponent uh, is a traitor to this country. Now, how do you compromise with a person when you say that, that they are traitors uh, to this country? Uh, there's no way to have a civilized discussion. There's no way to uh, reach a compromise. So uh, that is the central uh, argument of the book. And of course, you can find examples of, on the left or of Democrats who do that sort of thing. But there's, you know, just in terms of the volume of it, in terms of uh, the overall impact, there's, there's really no way to draw an equivalence. I'd like to talk a little bit more, Dana, about how Newt changed the culture of Washington. You mentioned the language that he used and how it really reshaped the way that politicians talk. But he also instituted, you know, he really did change the culture of Washington. I mean, starting with the fact that, you know, he shifted the work week from, from mostly a, a full-time venture in Washington where lawmakers would move their wives and their kids up to D.C. They would socialize together behind the scenes across party lines and how it became more of a three-day-a-week uh, in, in Washington 
type mm -hmm. work week and then they'd spend as much time as they could in the district. Um, I know that he centralized a lot of decision making power in the leadership. He took away a lot of the independence of committee chairs. Uh, committees met less frequently. He ended up cutting down the staffs of the Congressional Budget Office and all these nonpartisan institutions that helped Congress make decisions. Talk a little bit about that and, and the impact of some of those decisions that he made. Yeah, I think that's a that's a very important uh, piece of it. And if you think, uh, you know, now we sort of think of our uh, uh, legislators uh, getting involved in a two and a half, uh, three day uh, work week. When you rail against uh, Washington, uh, you know that Washington is the problem. That Washington uh, is the enemy. It, through much of our politics, and when it was indeed uh, functional. Uh, you would, it was a, a five day, but in, in the early days, much longer. You'd come to Washington for, you know, months at a time. But, uh, the idea was, uh, before, uh, Newt rose, uh, before the revolution of 94, uh, uh, members of Congress tended to move their families to Washington. They, uh, socialized, uh, together. Their, uh, children went to school together. Uh, and this was important because, you know, if you're actually playing cards with the guy across the aisle, if your kids are friends, uh, it becomes you don't think of demonizing them as traitors uh, to the country. Uh, so, uh, you know, uh, Newt pioneered this idea of campaigning against this permanent Washington that, you know, and his his people were not going to move their families here. They're going to be back in the district with their constituents. So essentially, he took away the glue uh, that had held uh, politics together. And there was also another major change that occurred when he rose to power, and that was the uh, generational change. The uh, greatest generation, uh, the ones that fought World War II together, had been uh, in power uh, for decades. And uh, with the uh, rise of Newt, it was the beginning of the dominance of the baby boomers, and particularly the type of baby boomers who were these cultural warriors uh, that had, you know, the, their experience in, in war was Vietnam, when there was a lot of, you know, uh, fighting on the uh, home front. And so it became more ambiguous to him that, you know, he viewed politics as war. He often he used that uh, quotation uh, from Mao. Uh, and uh, he saw uh, politics uh, as an extension uh, of the battlefield. So uh, it, it very, it, that, that is important to say how that tone really uh, changed uh, with Newt. And just the, the politics of personal peak. So um, I want to go back to your book and look through some of the examples of things that happened during uh, 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 Newt's tenure that are that have strong parallels to what we saw from Donald Trump. If if, if that sounds like a good approach, uh, and here's the first one, um, Dana, you write about the aftermath of the suicide of Vincent of Vince Foster. Um, Foster, of course, an important player in the Clinton administration. Um, he, this, he killed himself in the middle of investigations of, of Hillary Clinton, of Bill Clinton over, uh, so many different activities, businesses, business activities, things that had happened in Arkansas and, and, in, and it was ruled clearly after investigation, a suicide, but Republicans and what year would, I don't remember, was it 93? I think that he killed himself. In, and yeah. it was found yeah, in uh, Fort Fort Marcy Park. Okay, so it, it was clearly a suicide, but that's not the way Republicans decided to approach it. And and among the people who 
began this uh, notion that Vincent Foster may have been murdered because he had evidence and information about the corruption of the Clintons was Newt Gingrich, who at one point said, in your book, uh, there's a quote, quote, there's something that doesn't fit about this whole case and the way that it's been handled. I'm not convinced he didn't commit suicide. I'm just not convinced he did. And in talking about that, Gingrich essentially began uh, demonizing law enforcement and the FBI. It was the start, in many ways, of a Republican effort to uh, to look at law enforcement as a potential enemy, no longer a friend. Yes? Yeah, that's right. And we saw that in other ways uh, in the run-up to the Oklahoma City bombing. Uh, you know, a lot of the really hot rhetoric, uh, you know, coming from, you know, it was directed against the ATF and the in the wake of the uh, Waco raid. But, you know, and, and it was the it was Republican leaders uh, in Congress. And you had on the radio, you had G. Gordon Liddy saying you should kill the sons of bitches. You, know, you should take take a headshot, you know, talking about federal uh, uh, ATF uh, agents. So, yes, that was an important piece of it. And the since Foster thing was also a key because it's sort of the beginning of this weaponization uh, of disinformation. Now, there had always been through our history and always will be, you know, people who believe in conspiracy theories. That's that's nothing new. What changed uh, with the Vince Foster uh, suicide was the idea that it was being embraced at, at very high levels of government, specifically by the uh, the Speaker of the House. So, and you know, as you note, uh, this, you know, it was a very clear uh, suicide. This guy had, you know, sought uh, psychiatric help. He'd gotten an antidepressant prescription. He had, you know, uh, lost a lot of weight. He wrote a suicide note. I mean, it, you know, it could not have been more obvious. It was investigated by the uh, Secret Service, by uh, congressional investigators, by the Park Police, because of where uh, he was found. There have been several sep- uh, separate independent investigations, all reached the same obvious conclusion. But you had Newt, the Speaker of the House, saying, you know, I just don't uh, accept it. Uh, you had the person, Dan Burton, who he put in charge of the, uh, the top investigative committee in the House, uh, pretty openly suggesting that... Uh, he was murdered, and many other people uh, implying that you know Hillary Clinton had something to do with it. And in its craziest incarnations, you know, he was uh, he was murdered in a property owned by Hillary Clinton and rolled up in a carpet and dragged to the park. It was just yeah. really crazy stuff. And then you had this chairman, uh, Dan Burton, go into his backyard and shoot a melon, or maybe it was a cantaloupe or a pumpkin. You know, the the, the details are lost to history, but he wanted to prove that. Uh, that Vince Foster was murdered and that it hadn't been a suicide. Uh, so here you had uh, leaders uh, of a political party, important people in government, telling the conspiracy theorists, uh, you're right. And what they discovered is you could convince a large number uh, of people to believe a lie. Uh, and I, you know, when, by the time they were done, I think there was only 30, 35 percent of the public that just accepted the basic truth that uh, Vince Foster had killed himself. And so that was sort of the, the prototype that would be followed. You know, you saw it again with the, uh, a lot of the, uh, the, the fictions that were used to justify the war in Iraq. Uh, you saw it uh, later with the death panel lies uh, during Obamacare. Uh, you uh, saw it with the birther lies used against Barack Obama uh, and his birth certificate. Of course, in the Trump era, you know, we talk about the big lie, but I think the big lie wouldn't have come along if there hadn't been 
uh, all of the, you know, the public had been conditioned, uh, you know, basically discrediting uh, the truth, discrediting the facts, discrediting the media. Uh, it had, you know, the sort of the ground had been softened for this. And again, that, be, that began with Newt Gingrich. Tamar? I mean, I think you definitely saw this this partnership that he formed with a kind of right wing talk show host books like Rush Limbaugh, who he would regularly talk to and kind of feed him information, go on his shows, kind of talk even more, you know, feeding the media, even lies or kind of half truths about political enemies. The media would run a story based on that. And then he'd hold up the story saying, see, this is even more evidence of, of how corrupt this is. Uh, but, but Dan, I did want to talk to you about the way that that Newt use the media, but also attack the media as tools of the left. I mean, that, this is something I've dealt with my entire career, and I kind of, to me, this is the world I've always operated in, uh, that, that the right would attack the media for being a puppet of the left. But to you, maybe a lot of this originated with Newt, and obviously it's something really that, that was mastered by Trump with his enemies of the people rhetoric. Mm -hmm. Yes. And you'll probably remember, Tamar, how when Newt Gingrich had his ill-fated run for the presidency, I think it was in 2012, a lot of it was campaigning against journalists, the, the media uh, as the enemy. But, yeah, that goes that goes right back to uh, 1994. And there had been complaints, you know, during the Reagan years and before about sort of the liberal media, the bias. Uh, in the media. Uh, Gingrich's rise was concurrent with, and I think related to, uh, uh, as you mentioned, uh, Rush Limbaugh. So he went uh, uh, national, uh, uh, nationally syndicated with his radio show, I think it was 1988, just as Newt is rising uh, in, in the party. Uh, and uh, Gingrich learned how to use that uh, new medium uh, particularly well. And there was a uh, a young guy named Sean Hannity. I think he was down there in Atlanta, in fact, on, uh, on the radio. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, you know, another, you know, just getting his, his start there. Uh, and there was also the new medium of C-SPAN. And this is uh, in one way how uh, Gingrich uh, used his rise to power. Uh, what he recognized is the camera was just trained on the speaker uh, in the in the person you know talking at that moment in the House of Representatives, you couldn't see that the entire chamber uh, was empty. Mm -hmm. So Newt and his colleagues, you know, would get together and would say the most outrageous things, you know, about the Democrats' uh, patriotism, and they, he would challenge them to answer him if they had an answer. And of course, it would be silent because there was nobody in the, on the floor of the, the Congress when he was giving the speech. Uh, so he would use that to imply that the Democrats had no answer. Uh, to his charges, and he used that sort of bomb throwing uh, to uh, to uh, gain power and to gain a following. So it was done through the C-SPAN. It was done through conservative talk radio, you know. And eventually, uh, this expanded into the, the Drudge Report, and of course, into the Fox News uh, that we see today. But this sort of siloing of uh, of uh, news by uh, party by ideology was definitely something that uh, Gingrich exploited. Uh, when it was still a novelty back then. By the way, we, we should point out that the C-SPAN focusing on, uh, on on just the well, the speaker, uh, was transformed because the Speaker of the House went uh, to Brian Lamb at C-SPAN and said, uh, we need another shot. We need a shot of the chamber itself showing that it is empty while these Republicans like Gingrich are making these speeches, these outraged, outraged speeches to an empty house. I just point right. that out. And one other quick personal note, uh, uh, Dana. Um, I began covering Newt. I, I came to Atlanta from Chicago in 1983 
And I came here to cover politics, and that became well-known that I was the new political guy in town. And Gingrich, with some regularity back in those days, would just show up at the offices of WSB-TV just to have a cup of coffee. He just wanted to talk about his ideas for transforming the country. He was, mm-hmm. couldn't have been more friendly. And, and it was often off the record, but he was clearly trying to cultivate, and I say this given what Tamar talked about, a positive relationship with the new political reporter in town and more than willing uh, to work in the most amicable way possible. Later, when he became speaker, when his uh, book deal uh, uh, became uh, the subject of great controversy, uh, when I began reporting on that, I was essentially cast out of being able to talk to Newt Gingrich. <laughs> Tony Blankley, who was his uh, communications guy, basically said, we're not going to have anything more to do with you. And I just think that's a personal example tomorrow of the way in which you're talking about uh, Gingrich and others like him using us in, to some extent and then dismissing us when we're not being uh, friendly. Dana, does that ring a bell at all to you? Yeah, I think it does. Um, and you, you talk about Newt being an ideas guy, and he is an ideas guy, but he's not an ideologue. Uh, and you know, if you look back to his very early, he had a couple of unsuccessful campaigns uh, for Congress uh, in the 1970s. You know, he held himself out as being progressive uh, racially. Uh, uh, he uh, you know, was 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 you know probably in more of the the Rockefeller or perhaps at, at most the, the Nixon mold uh, mm-hmm. of Republicans. And he was particularly uh, on racial matters. Now, this changed substantially, a change in his successful run for Congress when uh, you know, one of his advisors had uh, told the, the Post at the time they used sort of every uh, racial trope uh, in the book. Uh, you know, so Newt was flexible ideologically in terms of what uh, would work for him. Uh, so, you know, the ideas of using uh, racial politics, the idea of ca- campaigning against the uh, the media as the enemy, and for, <clears throat> for that matter, campaigning against Democrats uh, as the enemy, they, they were situational. Uh, and in that sense, you know, Donald Trump is very much the same sort of a character. He was uh, he was pro-choice. He was for universal uh, health care. Uh, and uh, he was for uh, racial tolerance. Back when I covered him in 1999, uh, he completely transformed himself. Newt transformed himself because they discovered this was the politics that worked. All right, I'm late for a break. Let's get to it right now. We'll get back with more with Tamar Hellerman and our special guest, Dana Milbank, in a moment. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. AJC senior reporter Tamar Hallerman joins me for our conversation with Dana Milbank, Washington Post columnist whose new book is called The Destructionists, The 25-Year Crack-Up of the Republican Party. Um, Dana, I do think there's a very important uh, thread in your book that we really ought to talk about, and and that is um, the way in which following the bombing of the Moore Federal Building in Oklahoma City by an acknowledged white supremacist, anti-government Timothy McVeigh, the way in which Republicans, including Newt Gingrich, 
seem to rally around, to some extent, those white supremacists. And you write in your book an example of that. Um, Gingrich uh, is on Meet the Press. Uh, Tim Russert is doing the interview. I think he gave him the whole hour at that point because <laughs> he was Speaker of the House. And, and when, when, um, when he was asked about extre- ex- you know, the extremist movement out there, uh, by Russert, Newt said, quote, well, I think that people are allowed in a free country to get together for a lot of reasons, and I don't think you should condemn any group as a group. Talking, And this is after Russert asked him about anti-government militias. He says, mm-hmm. there is across the West a genuine sense of fear of the federal government, and that is not extremist, is, that, and that, that, that is not as extremist a position in much of the West. So it comes back to, it's Donald Trump in the White House saying they're good people on both sides, um, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, years and years later, yes? Yeah, and even a more direct parallel now we're seeing, you know, after the, um, the search in uh, Mar-a-Lago, there was all this talk mm-hmm. of tyranny, uh, you know, they're, they're coming for you, that, you know, the idea that the government uh, is uh, this tyrannical state that is oppressing uh, the people, the, uh, the idea being that you are justified in your fear of government. And, you know, Newt uh, and, and the Republican Revolution of 94 brought about a change in uh, Republicanism away from sort of limited government to anti-government. Uh, this was the time when people started talking about, you know, government black helicopters coming after you, uh, jackbooted thugs. Uh, the idea uh, being that the, the government was oppressing the people. And if you were afraid of your government, if you were buying guns, uh, because you were afraid of your government. Well, you were justified in doing that. So they were beginning to harness the energy of the uh, militia movement, the patriot movement. And, you know, and again, this is also things that have always been there in American culture, but they were being allowed into a major political party uh, for the first time. And that happened again uh, uh, with the Tea Party uh, movement. And it certainly happened in a, in a much bigger way. Uh, uh, during the, the Trump era to the point where the Patriot movement, you know, the Proud Boys stand by. I mean, the Proud Boys have been very much brought on board uh, as part of the Republican Party. It's been a merging of the, uh, you know, the anti, occasionally violent anti-government right with the officialdom of the, Demo- of the Republican Party. Dana, you, you trace back a lot of the government dysfunction that we've seen over the last 25 years to, to Gingrich and his hard-nosed brand of politics, um, impeachments, shutdown showdowns, failure to address all sorts of critical issues like immigration, climate change, you name it. Um, and I'm curious how, how all of that inaction helped Gingrich when he was speaker. Mm-hmm. Why, why would he end up in situations like that? Yes. There was and there was a great uh, moment uh, in uh, in 1995. Uh, Newt went to a, a breakfast of all these old uh, reporters in Washington. It used to be called the uh, uh, the Sperling Breakfast um, because of this, this old guy from the Christian Science Monitor, Gene, Gene Sperling, and uh, we would uh, uh, oh Godfrey Sperling, sorry, Gene was the uh, was in the uh, Clinton administration. Um, so he uh, was uh, sat down and said. He was really mad that he had gone to uh, gone on uh, Air Force One with Clinton uh, to uh, the, the funeral in uh, Israel of Israel's uh, slain uh, prime minister, and uh, Clinton had not come back enough to talk to him. And then he made him get off 
the, the back stairway of Air Force One. And Gingrich admitted that this influenced him in a way he wanted to take an even harder line uh, in shutting down the government. So he, spa- he was essentially saying that he shut down the government because he had to go down the back uh, stairway uh, of Air Force One, and it became this, uh, you know, this huge scandal at the time, and it indeed uh, weakened his hands during those uh, government shutdowns. You know, why did they uh, come about? I think the idea, uh, and you've seen it repeatedly since then. You know, so with Mitch McConnell saying we need to uh, make uh, Barack Obama a one-term president, and you, what McConnell said is you can't take him on. All at once, you have to build up this inventory of failures and then take him on. And that was very much a newt uh, inspiration. The, the way you bring down your opponent is you essentially halt their agenda or you halt the agenda entirely. And this became the idea of throwing sand uh, in the gears of government. If you can bring government to its knees and they can't produce anything, well, then the people will uh, become disenchanted with the governing party. Uh, in, in, in this case, during the, the Clinton years, the Democratic Party, and they will give Republicans uh, a chance. And this has been played over and over again, the idea that you, you make government look bad, you will be uh, rewarded uh, for that. Uh, and so we have, uh, you know, we, we saw that uh, again during the uh, Obama administration. You know, it, it, you know, people may not remember, you know, before Gingrich rose to power, there, were, there was really no such thing as government shutdown. You know, they would happen, but it would be technical and, you know, functions wouldn't really shut down. Uh, there was no, you know, uh, Ronald Reagan would, would rail about how reckless and irresponsible it is to play with, you know, defaulting on the national debt. Uh, you know, they passed their annual appropriations bills like clockwork, you know, stuff that just doesn't happen today. There was, you know, they didn't re- rely on omnibus spending bills and, you know, continuing resolutions, you know, that sort of have the government on autopilot because people uh, can't agree. Uh, you know, there was, again, sort of good faith compromise. Uh, that's how Ronald Reagan's agenda got through a Democratic House because, you know, Bob Michael, the Republican leader, Sat down with Tip O'Neill and said, "All right, you know, let's let's work out some compromise here," uh, and they did. That's just that was just routine, and it, it and it really changed on a dime when uh, with with Gingrich's revolution. I'd like to ask you about the impact of this latest news from the January 6th committee last week that they've asked Gingrich to testify about communications he allegedly had um, with the Trump campaign, um, and and apparently a. a you know, his apparent role in this scheme to appoint fake electors and some emails that he'd sent to Mark Meadows. Um, do you think Newt would ever voluntarily sit down with the January 6th committee? And do you think he could be implicated in, in all of this? So obviously, I follow the, the Fulton County investigation and they're sharing information with the January 6th committee. I wonder if it's a matter of time before he starts hmm. appearing in a subpoena request down here. Yeah, it's so hard to predict. Uh, which way these investigations uh, go. But, you know, in, in terms of, uh, uh, you know, Newt Gingrich, I mean, there's nobody who enjoys hearing Newt Gingrich talk as much as Newt Gingrich. So I, I think he would probably relish uh, the opportunity to, uh, to speak to the January 6th uh, committee uh, or to anybody else. Now, remember, Newt Gingrich is on record saying he thinks members of the January 6th committee should be facing jail time. Uh, you know, the criminalization of politics that he began back then, he is still uh, talking about uh, now. Uh, and indeed, Newt has been, he's been on, on the board of, uh, 
uh, a pro-Trump uh, uh, foundation here in Washington. He's been an advisor uh, to Kevin McCarthy. Uh, so he is very much involved uh, in uh, continuing to shape this Republican Party uh, in the image that he created back then. And, you know, particularly what their interest in the January 6th committee is Newt Gingrich's lines about how to turn this anger, how to how to um, uh, profit, how to capitalize on this rage, um, and that that is that is vintage Gingrich. You know, long you know, 20 years before uh, Trump came in and said, you know, was just sort of proud about how he brings out the rage in people. Um, that was uh, that was Gingrich bringing out the rage uh, against uh, you know, three different Democratic uh, speakers of the House, bringing one down entirely, uh, and spreading all this innuendo about another. Just the constant uh, outrage uh, that uh, fills our politics today. That was that was Newt's specialty in bringing out that anger. I've got to get to our final break of the show. We'll have more with Dana Milbank in just a minute. We're talking with Dana Milbank, uh, Washington Post columnist. His new book is The Destructionist, the 25-year crack-up of the Republican Party. Tomorrow, Hallerman, we cannot let Dana Milbank go without talking a little bit about what's happening here in Georgia's midterm elections. And Dana, the reason I'd like to get your take on some of this is that whereas Trump uh, uh, candidates around the country have clearly been benefiting from uh, uh, Trump's endorsements, here in Georgia, things are a little bit different. David Perdue had absolutely no success, uh, despite Trump's endorsement encouraging him to get into the race against Brian Kemp. Uh, Kemp shellacked him. It wasn't even a close race. And Jody Heiss, uh, the congressman who Gingrich endorsed for secretary of state, was badly beaten by the incumbent Brad Raffensperger. So we have a somewhat different landscape here in Georgia in terms of Trump and the endorsements he's made. What, what do you make of that as somebody watching from Washington? Yes. Well, you, you haven't entirely because, of course, you've got uh, Herschel Walker uh, to deal with yeah. down there. So you haven't escaped the, uh, the Trump impact entirely. I think that in Georgia, you're in a little bit, I, at least I hope I, we could say you're a bit ahead of the curve uh, because you have uh, you saw uh, during the uh, the special elections uh, following the uh, 2020, you saw in all the craziness and involving the uh, effort to overturn the election there, uh, you, you saw up close what this uh, was all about. Uh, so uh, it is, uh, you know, and I, I, you had some a uh, couple of Republicans there, uh, particularly Raffensperger, who, uh, you know, very uh, uh, boldly and bravely stood out, stood up. Uh, for democracy, uh, and they've been uh, punished around the country. Uh, Republican voters in Georgia uh, did not uh, uh, punish them, and that is in you know stark contrast. Like, look what's going on in Arizona, another contested state, right up and down the ballot for uh, governor, secretary of state, for the Senate. They are uh, election deniers who uh, who say the uh, you know the, the, the falsehood that the uh, election was stolen. So, uh, you know, perhaps, you know, looking at the, uh, an optimistic uh, look at it here, that uh, uh, Georgia voters have seen uh, the craziness up close of the election. They said, look, we're going to push back uh, against this. And there is a hopeful 
sign that uh, uh, there is some of that going on now that they've, you know, people across the nation have seen uh, all of the, you know, the election deniers uh, being given Republican nominations that they're they're pushing back uh, against that. So perhaps that's what's going on. I was saving Herschel Walker for a separate uh, a moment or two because you you wrote a very funny column about Herschel Walker's comments about the fact we already have too many trees. What, what, talk to us a little bit about how you've observed Herschel Walker's campaign, and if you want, put it in the context of his comments about trees. Oh, he's. I mean, it's you know, for somebody who does what I do, it's been it, it's been a delight, and how you know the dirty air you're sending to China, or you send the clean air, and they <laughs> and they make it dirty again and send it back, and you have to clean it up. I mean, it's you know, it, it's uh, I imagine you know, it's it's difficult for Senator Warnock to run against Herschel Walker because how do you pick? You know, which one of these many things do you choose uh, to uh, exploit during your campaign there? But he has been. Um, I mean, it's 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 been a it's been some comic relief uh, on the national level, but uh, I, I suspect for a lot of you down there, this isn't at all funny. And yet, Tamara, that race is neck and neck moving forward. Yeah, and, and Dana, I just want to ask you. You know, you say that Republicans are the ones who've ceased good faith participation in the democratic process, and you think that's kind of at the root of a lot of the decay we've seen in our democratic systems. But I'm curious if you. How much do you think Democrats bear the blame, if at all, for the, the kind of intractable state of politics today in America? Well, I think Democrats have reacted uh, uh, against uh, you know the Repu- the rise of the various trends we've been talking about on the Republican side, uh, you know, with some level of uh, you know a, a tit for tat uh, exchange with them. You know, I think more often than not, Democrats are you know, rightly accused. Of, of not being able to stand up uh, to the threat that's coming uh, from Republicans. And I think that gets at the asymmetry uh, of the fight that we're in now. You know, there's no equivalent on, on, uh, on the Democratic side to the level of disinformation uh, that's coming from the Republican side. Uh, there's no equivalent to uh, sort of the, uh, the weaponization of race uh, and racial fears. Uh, there's certainly no equivalent uh, to the violence. Now, there are examples of all of those things among Democrats and, and people on the left. It's just a matter of volume. Now, you know, could Democrats, you know, start weaponizing disinformation? Well, they could, uh, but of course, then then the battle has already been lost. Then you know, then we're living in a in, we're truly living in a post-truth, post-fact uh, society. So, in a way, the Democrats are playing with one hand tied behind their backs because they are still. Uh, playing by the rules uh, in terms of uh, disinformation, uh, in terms of the you know the democratic uh, process versus demagoguery, it's very difficult to fight uh, demagoguery. If uh, you know, look at it uh, throughout history, uh, so you know nothing in my book is an apology for Democrats and, and how they've handled it. What my book is about is a rallying for small D Democrats, uh, and there are. Uh, you know, at least a third of Republican voters have very little interest in, in, in Trumpism and are very much on board with the, the Democratic, uh, uh, small d Democratic experiment. So, you know, what Biden's been doing lately and saying, you know, I'm not against Republicans and conservative Republicans. I'm against MAGA uh, Republicans. I mean, that is the distinction. You, you can't really be in a system when you're when if your opponents are not 
uh, ad- adhering to uh, the rules that are followed. Um, Dana, let's talk about that for a second, because, of course, uh, President Biden's speech last Thursday night um, was celebrated by many Democrats who said, thank goodness, he's finally getting into the fight in a more aggressive way, um, Mm -hmm. whereas there were Republicans and not just Kevin McCarthy Republicans, not just the guys who are really willing to go whole hog into the MAGA world, uh, who said calling the MAGA people semi-fascists is equivalent to the basket of deplorables that Hillary Clinton got caught mm-hmm. talking about during her campaign for president. You, again, wrote a really, uh, I thought, um, meaningful column about that in, in offering your faux apology to uh, the semi-fascists out there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think, uh, you know, it's, it seems clear to me, at least, that Biden is talking about Republican leaders. He's not talking about the people who go out and, and vote for Republicans. But this is a, this is something that you know, McCarthy, for example, has done before when, uh, you know, uh, Speaker Pelosi called him a moron over the, 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 the uh, pandemic uh, mandates. Uh, and he went out and sold T-shirts saying, you know, Democrats are calling all of you, our voters, morons. Well, no, they were specifically calling you a moron, Kevin uh, McCarthy. Uh, so, uh, you know, I think what, uh, what Biden and what Democrats need to do is be very clear that they are talking about Trump, uh, McCarthy, uh, Gingrich. They're talking about leaders who are deceiving people uh, into believing uh, the big lie, uh, into believing uh, that violence is acceptable. Those are fascist tools. The idea of making your supporters out to be the victims, that's a fascist tool that uh, it, that is being used right now, in fact. So I, I think it's important for Democrats uh, to be uh, uh, calling out uh, what they're seeing. In fact, you're now seeing polls showing that uh, uh, Democratic voters and Republicans alike for different reasons, but Democratic voters uh, have made uh, concerns about democracy. They're very number one uh, concern. So I think important to draw a distinction who they're talking about. They're not talking about the people who have been uh, uh, deceived by these uh, these fascist tactics. They're being uh, uh, they're talking about the people who are deploying these tactics. Tomorrow is going to be fascinating to watch on the ground here in Georgia how that sort of campaigning by by President Biden and, and other Democrats plays out among voters because Dana's asking voters to make what I think is a subtle distinction that some of them won't be able to make and Republicans will do their best to make sure they can't make that distinction. Remember, often, you know, voters are just now starting to tune in, many of them right after Labor Day. And a lot of the outreach they're going to see is in little 30-second television ads where there's not a ton of room for nuance. And so it, it might be hard to, to make distinctions like that. We will watch it. Um, we're out of time. Um, Tamar Hallerman, you know how much I enjoy having you with me every Tuesday, and especially for this conversation with Dana Milbank. Dana, thank you. Your book, The Destructionist, the 25-year crack-up of the Republican Party, is available now. If people want it, I would hope they'll go buy it at, at an independent bookstore somewhere in Georgia. Um, get it on Amazon if you have to, but help help support the independent bookstores. And Dana, it's been a real pleasure to have you here. I, I will tell you that I always look forward to reading your columns in the Washington Post, and I really enjoyed uh, this book. So thanks an awful lot for joining us, Dana. Well, thank you both. for I've enjoyed this very much, and, and thank you for keeping them honest down there uh, in Georgia, where, which is now the <laughs> political epicenter of the country. 
it is certainly among a couple of them. Again, thank you very much. We're out of time uh, for today's show. Back with a political panel uh, led by Greg Bluestein. Uh, tomorrow, in the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. I hope you'll all take care and please stay healthy. Bye, everybody. <laughs>